Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. As China modernizes and seeks to build the requisite infrastructure to support its growing urban population, it has the benefit of having the city of Hong Kong within PRC territory. Hong Kong is blessed with the MTR, a superbly efficient mass transit rail system, and one of a handful in the world that actually makes a profit. We are glad to have with us this morning Lincoln Leung, Deputy CEO of MTR Corporation. Mr. Leung will tell us about MTR's expansion outside of Hong Kong and how MTR's experience in Hong Kong may or may not apply in the mainland. Mr. Leung, good morning, and welcome to China Takes Over the World. Morning, Yang. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Well, thank you for joining us. Almost all of the mass transit rail systems across the world are money are, are money losers. Could you tell us briefly about MTR's model and how that en- enables the company to make a profit? I'm very happy to do that.、Um, really, just speaking for MTR and the way we operate. I mean, firstly and importantly, we operate under the concept of commercial prudence and commercial principle. We've done that from day one of our operations 35 years ago. And importantly, on top of that, there are two other elements that allows for sustainable development of MTR, both financially and operationally. Both those elements are implicit in our business model, and the first part of that is what we call our rail and property model. That model allows for the development of properties on top and adjacent to our rail stations and depots, which contributes to the financial sustainability. And development of the rail system. The other aspect is a sustainable fare structure, which we have here in Hong Kong. So I think those three principles—commercial principle, rail and property, sustainable fare structure—allows for a continued sustainable, profitable rail operation. Well, thus far, is MTR able to export its model from Hong Kong into the mainland? Well, we're pleased to say that we now operate in a number of cities in the mainland. We operate in Beijing through a joint venture. We operate in Hangzhou also through a joint venture, and we operate now in Shenzhen through a wholly owned subsidiary. Each of these cities use would use different aspects of that model. It is interesting that in Shenzhen, in addition to building and operating one of the lines in Shenzhen, Shenzhen Line Four, we have now Involved in a property development that is akin to the type of structure we have in Hong Kong. That structure allows for the convenience, particularly for our passengers, in using the、uh, rail system to also conveniently use and access the property development that will ultimately be built on top of our depot in Sunjun. So the initial export of that rail and property model, I believe, has begun. And we would like to see more of that development elsewhere, not just in the mainland, but elsewhere in the world. Well, since the financial crisis, we have heard a lot about the massive infrastructure projects that China has embarked on. But we also know that China has built airports, highways, rail lines, and even entire cities that are barely used. When it comes to the public rail system, do you think it's a good idea to create? An abundance of supply far ahead of demand. Well, if one looks at the cities that we operate in, in fact, we're very honoured to have the opportunity to operate in those cities, to build and operate in those cities. 
we see some very significant demands in the usage of the lines that we have and the lines that we have built, be that in Beijing and Hangzhou or in Sunjun. You know, at the end of the day, I think the continued sustainable development of metro is important. What we have here in Hong Kong is a concept of metro rail being the backbone of public transportation. As cities continue to urbanize, not just uh, in the main of China, but across the world, the need for efficient, effective transportation is paramount. And I think metro development allows for that sustainable urbanization. Uh, well, but do you think that cities should at least, or, or re- regions or locales should at least urbanize first before entire rail lines or an, an entire city is, is built on land, as, as some of these ghost cities in, in, in China have been? Well, I can only tell uh, you what our experience has been, and our experience has been very positive in the mainland of China. We do, once again, see uh, very significant patronage on uh, a number of our lines in the mainland. It's, it's interesting because there are two concepts uh, for metro development. One is people leading rail, which is rail systems going into older, developed parts of the city. But the other one is rail leading people, which is really a so-called TOD, transit-oriented development approach. That TOD approach would have a combination of rail and property, perhaps in new parts of a city. We've done that in multiple places in Hong Kong with uh, significant success. China has had some very high-profile problems with its rail system. For instance, there was the tragic high-speed rail accident in Wanzhou in 2011 and the accident on the Shanghai Metro that injured hundreds in the same year. What lessons from MTR's experience do you think are most applicable for China's current efforts to create a safe and, and modern type of infrastructure, especially a mass rail system for its citizens? Well, from the MTR perspective, and this is really from our own perspective, safety is always our top priority. Safety is paramount in everything we do, from our construction of new rail systems to the operating to the maintenance of those systems. And this is safety for all our stakeholders, importantly for our passengers, as importantly for our colleagues, our employees, and third-party contractors that may be working in our network. So safety for us is paramount. That safety is encompassed in a number of areas. One area is having good safety systems. The other area is having a good safety culture. We believe that we at MTR have those aspects in place. We are speaking with Mr. Lincoln Leong, Deputy CEO of the MTR Corporation. MTR has been embroiled in a fair amount of controversy in recent months. Um, One issue that's garnered a fair amount of attention is the delay of the completion of the Hong Kong high-speed rail link to Guangzhou. uh, And the completion date has been delayed for two years to 2017. I I know this is an issue that's been talked about in Hong Kong quite a bit. Um, From your point of view, what do you see as as, um, the biggest challenge of of getting this project to where you would like it to be moving forward? I mean, my first comment is, you know, once again, apologize to our stakeholders for this delay. The um, 
the Express Rail Link, as you pointed out, is a complex project. It's a big and complex project. And as I mentioned before, safety and quality remains paramount for us. So whatever we do, including the construction of the Express Rail Link, safety and quality of construction would be paramount. There are a number of reasons for the delays. In fact, this is well highlighted in a report by our independent board committee, which um, uh, produced the first report back in July, well, earlier on this month. We have learned a number of lessons from that, uh, from those delays, and we are taking measures to um, ensure that there are mitigants in place to deliver that express rail link uh, under the revised program to be a rail system that the people of Hong Kong in the future can be proud of. Well, at one point, the Global Times, a major government-run newspaper in China, criticized MTR for holding up the economic development of the Pearl River Delta with the delay of this express rail link to Guangzhou. What are your thoughts on being lectured by a newspaper from the mainland, um, which, as we said before, has seen its fair share of high-speed rail problems? Look, at the end of the day, you know, once again, we apologize to our stakeholders for um, for the delays, for any delays. Um, it's There are a number of lessons learned from it, and we are implementing measures that address the uh, those lessons learned. Do, do you think the delay and the associated cost overrun will affect MTR's future expansion into China and perhaps to other countries? Will it tarnish uh, MTR's reputation in that way? Well, uh, you know, if one looks at what we're doing in China today, I mentioned that we're operating in three cities. We continue to have conversations, and in fact, we put in a tender for, our joint venture put in a tender for another line in Beijing, Beijing Line 16, we continue to have discussions in Sunjun with the municipal government on Sunjun Line 6. As well as in Sunjun, we had signed an MOU to look at an extension of our existing line. So in mainland of China, our development continues, albeit as usual, in our prudent, uh, uh, prudent manner. I think outside of China, we've been uh, honored to have been entrusted over the last few years in running the system, the metro system in Melbourne, in Stockholm, and London Overground in the UK. Recently, uh, we had some successes as well there. We were awarded the franchise for Crossrail, which is an important new line in the city of London, or through the city of London. And we have also uh, been awarded as part of a consortium, the so-called Northwest Rail Link in Sydney, Australia. So we've been we're honoured and uh, uh, to have been awarded these new construction and operation projects. So, so thus far, um, so thus far, you have not seen any backlash from overseas locations where you guys would like to to expand into. Uh, no, I would say that in fact our experience overseas, outside of China, as well as the mainland of China is that uh, a number of cities that we operate in, many of the cities we operate in, uh, recognize the value add which MTR can bring in terms of systems, in terms of operations, in terms of asset management, and continues to uh, 
look for qualities of that nature in their in their new systems or in finding operators for their existing systems. MTR is listed on the Hang Seng Index and, and it's 77% owned by the Hong Kong government. Uh, state-owned companies on the mainland often have the reputation of being bloated, inefficient and corrupt. Uh, clearly, these characteristics don't describe MTR, but some critics have noted that it was the central Chinese government that directed the Hong Kong government to build the express rail link to Guangzhou and that the the government may have been the one to have set the unrealistic timetable for completing the now delayed Hong Kong to Guangzhou express rail link. Uh, do you think MTR's government ownership has uh, contributed to some of its recent problems? I would say not at all. I would say that Hong Kong government is, as you mentioned, a 70-some percent shareholder of MTR. They are they are and remain a uh, very good, very supportive shareholder of MTR. The governance structure that we have at MTR uh, not only meets but exceeds many of the standards that uh, that are required, not just in Hong Kong but elsewhere. We have a very supportive board of directors as well. So I think from a, a governance and a shareholder perspective, I think MTR is is very fortunate to be in the position that we are in. Uh, now, go, turning back to your um, presence in China, and you alluded earlier to uh, your operations in Shenzhen and the uh, uh, beginning of the adoption of your rail uh, plus real estate development model. What do you think are some of the obstacles to the MTR model being adopted throughout the other cities that MTR uh, is operating or will be operating in, in China? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, many cities are interested in this model. We have visits from high-ranking officials from many cities across the mainland, but not just in the mainland. We have interest from many other countries as well, be that Australia or in Europe or in North America. Uh, I think that if one looks at what we've done in Sanjan, Sanjan for us is the first step in a rail and property type approach. And I think it shows that cities in the mainland of China are interested to pursue this approach and continue to develop this model. We've been speaking with Lincoln Leong, Deputy CEO of MTR. Lincoln, thank you. Ying, thank you very much. Please send us your comments on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Bong. Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Our program has now been on the air for half a year. We will be going on hiatus, and this is our last episode for a while. During our time on the air, we've attempted to bring to you the weighty issues related to China's historic rise. With a name like China Takes Over the World, it is no surprise that we've honed in on China's great power competition with the United States. China's strategic rivalries with neighbors in Asia and its growing economic and political presence overseas. Repeatedly, we've returned to the following themes, China's going out policy, its ambitious foreign acquisitions, and its massive economic clout in places like Africa and Latin America. 
China's security and economic competition with the United States. China's territorial disputes with its neighbors, especially in the East and South China Seas, and China's domestic reform efforts and their impact on China's rise. We've put together some highlights from our episodes in the last、uh, six months. Here's an exchange with former Microsoft COO Robert Herbold. What do you think America should do to increase its economic competitiveness vis-a-vis China in the 21st century? Well, I think that it should worry about its competitiveness in the absolute,、uh, not necessarily,、uh, you know, just versus China.、Uh, I think that what has to be done is, is you know, what your typical entrepreneur has to do all the time, which is. Have the right kind of setting so that the uh, uh, the thinking and development and experimentation can take place, and、uh, it has traditionally been a strength of the U.S. Here's Professor Eshwar Prasad of Cornell University and the Brookings Institution in Washington. The renminbi is certainly on its way to becoming a reserve currency. Now, China will need to have a more open capital account, a more flexible exchange rate, and much deeper and broader financial markets, so that. Foreign investors will have easy access to renminbi-denominated assets. All of these are going to take a long time, but I think China is on the right track. And over the next、uh, one to two decades, I do see the renminbi becoming a viable and perhaps even a significant reserve currency. But that still leaves open the question about whether the renminbi will ever be considered a safe haven. And that I think is going to require much more than economic and financial market reforms. It will require much more fundamental changes in the institutional and political structure in China to make the political system more open and transparent, and it will require an independent judiciary. And as of now, economic and、uh, financial market reforms do seem to be on the cards, but I don't see a significant prospect of political, legal, or broader institutional reforms that will be necessary for the renminbi to be seen as a safe haven currency. And that's where I think it will. Erode, but not really challenge the dollar's dominance. Ambassador Bruce Linghu of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Los Angeles. Why do you think the people of Taiwan remain so wary of mainland China, despite the fact that cross-strait、um, tensions have significantly decreased and and much more robust economic ties and warmer political relations have materialized、uh, since President Ma Ying-jeou came to office in 2008?、Uh, yes.、Uh... The、uh, cross-strait relations has been、uh, much eased since President Ma took office in 2008.、Uh, as you understand, that uh, actually there have been 10, 11 uh, uh, dialogues between the two sides, and、uh, 21 agreements has been signed.、Uh, also, that right now、uh, every day there may be、uh, 118 fly- direct flights between.、Uh, Taiwan and mainland China cities. Right, and that's and, a new development. Yeah, yeah new development uh, under the Ma administration. The, the, the visitors from mainland to、uh, Taiwan from two hundred ninety thousand to a year to about now、uh, close to three million. And the、uh, the economic and cultural、uh, exchanges has been uh, uh, very uh, extensive, very uh, uh, very big volume. So there's all kinds of uh, uh, you know.、Um, Uh, relations uh, development between the two sides. However, you also understand that the uh, uh, 1,600 uh, missiles are still aiming at Taiwan. <laughs> 
Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago. I think that if China continues its impressive economic growth over the next 30 years, the way it has over the past 30 years, it will translate that economic might into military might, and it will try to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. It'll go to great lengths to make sure that it is the most powerful state in Asia by far. And it will try to push the United States uh, out of Asia, much the way the United States has a Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere and doesn't tolerate other great powers coming into its region of the world. So in effect, I think what China will try to do, and it would be smart to try to do this, in my opinion, uh, is dominate Asia. At the same time, the United States will go to great lengths to contain China and make sure that China does not dominate Asia. And in that enterprise, the United States will have lots of help from China's neighbors, which will have all sorts of reasons to fear China and join with the United States in a balancing coalition. Admiral Gary Roughhead, formerly the senior most black officer of the U.S. Navy and former commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. The fact of the matter is, and having been involved in in the Pacific for quite some time, uh, the the intent has never been to contain China. Uh, there's no question that we will compete at times with China and in certain areas, but we've also, over the years, uh, have, have sought to develop uh, cooperative uh, aspects to the relationship, and we continue to do that. Our exchange with Dr. Edward Lutvak of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. You wrote recently in Strategica, an online national security magazine, that the Chinese government has prematurely awakened the world to, quote, its classically imperial territorial ambitions by demanding the cession of lands, reefs, rocks, and seawaters from India, Japan, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, unquote. In what ways are China's demands premature? Well, everybody knows that China, uh, China's economic growth, while slowing down, is still going to be faster than the average of the country that it is now challenging. Therefore, it would behoove the Chinese, it would suit the Chinese, to continue with their previous policy called Peaceful Rise, shut up about islands and places, <laughs> ask for nothing, and simply continue growing. Dr. Mike Green, former special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia in the National Security Council under President George W. Bush. Do you think there's been too much reassurance and not enough of sort of the tougher rhetoric or, or measures there's on the been other? too much rhetorical reassurance, not real reassurance, but too much rhetoric about reassurance. And, you know, it was a, a mistake to issue a joint statement with Hu Jintao in 2009 saying we would respect China's core interests. And we said Tibet, to uh, Xinjiang, and Taiwan. But then the Chinese side at senior level started saying, oh, by the way, it includes the South China Sea and this and that. And the Indians and the Japanese and others were very unhappy with the administration. Uh, they, they were not consulted, by the way. Um, it was a mistake to um, embrace Xi Jinping's formula for a new model of great power relations. Not that we don't want cooperation with China, but when the Chinese talk about a new model of great power relations, they are very deliberately downgrading U.S. relations with Japan, India, and other partners and allies and saying that, the, that this is a new model for Asia, where the great powers, in the Chinese view, the U.S. and China, 
work things out together. So the, the administration's declaratory posture, how they've described relations with China, have been extremely um, disconcerting for allies. Dr. Ham Chaibong of the Asan Institute for Policy Studies in Seoul. I think it's instructive, again, to compare, let's compare the relationship that South Korea has with China on the one hand and, and Japan on the other. As I said, I mean, we... we we have we had a very difficult history with Japan, but so did we with China. Right, right. If we right, we right, had we actually fought a war against each other sure. with, during the Korean War, and sure. more Chinese soldiers died in the Korean War than all the other countries' uh, soldiers combined, and so it, it was a horrendous uh, loss uh, for for China. Uh, many people say it's sort of like uh, China's Vietnam War. And, and South Korea, of course, suffered deeply, and many South Koreans still believe that had it not been for Chinese intervention, uh, you know, we would be a united Korea today. So, you know, we, we have been, uh, we've had a very, very troubling uh, modern history, but the fact that we are completely able to overcome that now, right, despite that very, very recent history, we are able to uh, create this very positive uh, a growing relationship. Whereas with Japan, we, we've had this troubled relationship, and our economic ties with Japan uh, used to be far, far greater than our, our ties with, with China for a very long time. And despite all of that, we, we were not able to overcome that the past issue. Professor Hugh White of the Australian National University. China's primary motive there is in fact to compel the United States to start taking China more seriously. I think China, I think Beijing would prefer the United States uh, to leave Asia. I think China would prefer to, to replace the United States as a primary power in Asia. And again, retired Admiral Gary Roughhead of the U.S. Navy. I think our position on the use of force has been very clear. I think we have credible forces in the region. Uh, I'm aware of the chatter that has taken place, but I would say that uh, the U.S. resolve should not be doubted. And finally, an exchange with Professor Andrew Nathan of Columbia University. You once wrote that like all non-democratic systems in the modern era, the Chinese system suffers from a birth defect that it cannot cure, the fact that an alternative form of government is more legitimate. How well do you think the Chinese government is coping with this birth defect at the moment? Well, they're doing a good job uh, controlling the information that people get despite the existence of Internet and social media. They're doing a good job of delivering performance to the people, economic growth and international power and influence. And they're doing a good job also of scaring people who might want to challenge and question them. You know, people are pragmatic and they understand that they need to stay within the red lines. But I still think that most Chinese who are curious or who think, you know, which is a large middle class of Chinese and and many workers and peasants as well, um, feel that the current form of the regime is not really the best form. And even the government says that itself. It says that we have to build socialist democracy. We have to improve rule of law. We have to, you know, move on in our political system. So I think that the government does a good job, but it really can't cover up the fact that it is um, not a modern uh, uh form of government that's suited to a modern, developed, educated society. We thank our guests who have shared their perspectives and their expertise. I also want to thank Brian Curtis, Hugh Chiverton, and Angie Mon at RTHK for helping to turn this show into a reality. 
I thank our talented intern, Olivia Robinson, for her hard work and contributions. I want to thank the city of Hong Kong for making a show like China Takes Over the World possible. Though many would not consider this show especially controversial, we would likely not be able to air at least some of our episodes on mainland China. Of course, I am most grateful to the show's listeners in Hong Kong and around the world. Thank you for tuning in and for passing along your thoughts and words of encouragement to our Cantonese listeners. I want to say, 多谢大家嘅支持，多谢大家捧场。I hope our audience will continue to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/ChinaTakesOver or on Twitter at RisingChina. We may come back to you in another in another format, and we will keep our social media pages alive. And we would love to continue our conversation with you. And of course, we will continue to deliver to you commentary and analysis relevant to China. Finally, I want to leave you with a short poem that captures brilliantly both the sentiments that inspired this show and the gravity of the issues that we've covered. It is from the famed Chinese novel *The Three Kingdoms*. 滚滚长江东逝水，浪花淘尽英雄。是非成败转头空，青山依旧在，几度夕阳红。白发渔樵江渚上，惯看秋月春风。一壶浊酒喜相逢，古今多少事，都付笑谈中。Signing off for China takes over the world. I am Yingma. <音>